from the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. The science behind Christmas music. Dr. Bryn Weingard joins us to break down why some of us break down every time we hear a little Christmas cheer. Like me. It turns out that there's a good reason why we're getting Christmas creep on the radio and in stores. It works very well. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So you hate Christmas music. I despise it. Uh, And I'll tell you why. It's because when I was working in a grocery store through high school and university. Oh, you got your fill. I got my fill because there was an eight track on a stereo in the office with 12 songs on it. And beginning on about, I guess it'd be the day after American Thanksgiving, the boss's wife would put on this eight track and it would be the same 12 songs over and over again for a month. And it drove everybody crazy, but nobody seemed to take our concerns seriously. And to this day, I have PTSD every time I hear Girl Ives' Holly Jolly Christmas. Okay, so there are specific tracks that are triggers for you. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, Holly Jolly Christmas is one. Uh, Brenda Lee Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree is another one. Oh, yeah. Those two. Uh, it seemed like every time my attention was diverted away from what I was doing, one of those two songs was playing. And I, I cannot listen to either one of them to this day, and that was a long time ago. I have a similar problem, and that is one of the Toronto radio stations would flip to Christmas music before everyone else, mm-hmm. and we absolutely loathed walking down the halls because, of course, we had multiple radio stations in the operation. CHFI. Mm-hmm. would go all Christmas music. It felt like in July. No, it usually was the day of the Santa Claus Parade in Toronto. So that is the third Sunday in 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 November. Is there any evidence whatsoever in the radio business that going all Christmas music makes a whit of difference to the ratings? Yes, it does. Because what happens is the ratings come out in January, February, and the boost these stations get is so incredible that it decimates just about every other station in the market. So, yes, the reason they do it year after year after year is because it works. Feels like a variation of stop making stupid people famous. Will you please tune out this radio station? Uh, something like that, but it, it's just so it's so easy for stores and offices to turn on this station and just let it run. And since so many radio stations flip for to twenty four seven Christmas music now, there is a constant supply of new Christmas music every year. So it doesn't have to be Mariah Carey. All I want to hear, for, all I want for Christmas is you. There is this huge glut of new Christmas music every year, in addition to the perennial favorites, in addition to the traditional ones. I have three, and I had to work hard to come up with the third one, but I have three Christmas songs that I actually do enjoy, and one of them my wife hates so much we cannot even play it in the house. Okay. Uh, First on the list, 
And more to your Mariah Carey kind of thing, because it'd be interesting to get your take on rock and roll Christmas music and its success or lack thereof. But my favorite is John Lennon's Happy Christmas. Yeah. Co-written by Yoko Ono. Hey, I mm. could have said Paul McCartney. Oh, Wonderful Christmas Time? Oh, no. Which is actually pretty good, too. It is not. No. The moon is right. The spirit's up. We're here tonight. And that's enough. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The party's on. The feeling's here. That only comes to time of year. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. The choir of children sing their song. That's, that, that's an embarrassment to Paul McCartney's career. <laughs> number two and number three are actually um, novelty Christmas songs that we would listen to as we listen to Chum FM on the, uh, the Dr. Demento show. Mm. So it was Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer by, by the Rovers. Elmo and Patsy. Oh, Elmo and Patsy. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite, my favorite uh, verse is... She'd been drinking too much eggnog, and we begged her not to go, but she forgot her medication, and she staggered out the door into the snow. Grandma got run over by a reindeer, walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa, but as for me and Grandpa, we believe. She'd been drinking too much eggnog, and we begged her not to go But she forgot her medication And she staggered out the door into the snow When we found her Christmas morning At the scene of the attack She had hoof prints on her forehead And incriminating claws marks on her back Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve You can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe I can't believe that you can quote lyrics from that song. Oh, I can quote the entire Gala Peavy's I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. Oh, and that's number three? That is the third. I don't want a doll or rhinoceroses. I only like hippopotamuses. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do. Don't want a doll, no dinky tinker toy. I want a hippopotamus. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas I don't think Santa Claus will mind you He won't have to use our dirty chimney flue Just bring him through the front door That's the easy thing to do I can see me now on Christmas 
Okay, I can give you two. I I don't mind Greg Lake. I don't, I believe in Father Christmas. That's okay. Um, the Vandals have a song called "My First Christmas as a Woman." Okay. Um, and it's just what you think. And then okay, uh, I, wait, wait, hang on, hang on, back up. What year was that? Because uh, in the eighties. Yeah. Okay. So that's not going to be very appropriate. No. No. And I would. Uh, I, I do like uh, the Pogues and Fairy Tale of New York, oh, which is yeah, not yeah. really a Christmas song. True. But is certainly. It's been voted again and again and again the favorite holiday song by people in Britain. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, won't see another one. And then he sang a song, the rare old mountain tune. I turn my face away and dream about you. The song was recorded in March, and it was never designed as a Christmas song, but because they mentioned Christmas in the lyrics, it became a seasonal song, so you really can't play it any other time of the year. It's only, you know, in, in November, December that it really works. Yeah, the Screaming Trees put out a song about uh, with Christmas in the title, and no one would play it at any other time of year. No. No, we can't. There's there's actually a band called U.S. Christmas, and uh, they did not do very well 10 months of the year. I can imagine. The thing, though, and when I, I talked to people about the fact that we were going to do this episode, they were screaming bloody murder about the fact that we've got Christmas music creep. Yes, there are some radio stations that start as early as September. And not just radio stations, stores generally speaking. I know, I know. It's usually the earliest I recall seeing a Christmas display is late August at uh, Eaton's in the Eaton Center. <laughs> August. Late August. I remember it's still that. 32 degrees with the heat. Yeah, it was. It was. I uh, remember uh, the radio station I was working at, at the time. Uh, we had our, our, our offices there yep. and I went downstairs to get some lunch and there was a Christmas display and it was like the 28th or 29th of, of uh, August and it was 36 degrees outside. So for perspective on how Christmas music affects our brains, and if playing it too soon does more damage than good, we turn to business psychologist Dr. Bryn Weingard. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. At what point do we see that pendulum swing the other way, and we realize we're doing way more damage than good? Or at least that's my perception. Does the science back it up? Um, no. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, too. I mean, I heard Alan's story, and I think about all the poor retail workers who do have to put up with so much Christmas music. And the reason for that is because, just like the radio ratings, it works. It works in retail. You know, in fact, when we see increases in holiday music, we see increases in holiday shopping and in spending. And so that is why we will continue to hear holiday music. And of course, the creep, as you quite rightly point out, I remember a couple years ago, there was a whole controversy about um, holiday music before Remembrance Day. And people were saying, at least wait until after November 11th. And so November 12th is typically when you hear um, retailers really start to adopt that holiday Christmas, you know, all those kind of musical tunes. Um, and other things too, it's not the only thing they're doing to set the atmosphere, to set the experience. But um, it is because it works that they continue to use it. It's called uh, retail atmospherics. 
<laughs> and this was a, a, an actually um, a, a term coined by a professor at Northwestern University back in 1973. And there's been all kinds of research into this sort of thing. It works. It, it does work. So then is it junk science that, you know, we pull up this Linda Blair clinical psychologist article on Business Insider that says Christmas music can be mentally draining by spending all your energy trying not to hear what you're hearing. Um, I would have thought that there would have been a net negative effect on the shopper if they were annoyed by the fact they were listening to Christmas music so soon. Right. And I think that is true. So if you, if you do have a consumer who is particularly averse, like as an example, Alan's story, like there's PTSD associated with a particular tune or Christmas music in general. I mean, that person isn't likely to find themselves in that store for much longer and they certainly won't be buying more. However, that is the vast minority of shoppers. And the other truth is that shoppers will say, you know, cognitively, and, and this is the challenge we see time and again, but the shoppers who say we won't, we don't like Christmas music will themselves get duped into spending more by the creation of those retail atmospherics. And so what is interesting is that we answer questions like, do you like Christmas music or would you like to hear more Christmas music in the stores? We answer those questions with our conscious brain, the part of our brain that is able to formulate words. However, when we are in store and when we are at shelf and, and, you know, in this sort of what we call a being space of the experiential environment that most retailers strive to create, what we see is that the subconscious brain takes over. So we actually consume and procure and purchase with our subconscious brain. Um, and there's all kinds of evidence of this. And I've got great stories from a life lived in corporate marketing and retail environments to tell you about, but, you know, effectively that, that we've, shown that re that you know shoppers and in the retail environment you are a subconscious being and so what's true is that if as an example we can get to um sub threshold in terms of your detectable uh your detection of music that might irritate you then what's true is that you, you know you're you're basically going with the flow in that environment and with the flow that has been very purposely curated and created for you and and then what we've shown is that when that's true, when all those retail atmospherics work together to create sort of a being space that you enjoy being in, you do spend more money and you do, in fact, you know, get get duped effectively by that whole process. This goes all the way back to that book in the 1970s called Subliminal Seduction. Yeah. This was basically print ads that had pictures of penises or whatever it was in <laughs> in in. in, in um, ice cubes that would somehow stimulate the subconscious mind into, uh, and I'm not making any of this up. No, no, you're not making it up, but, but wasn't it largely debunked that if you put, um, a glass in an image in an ad that maybe if you looked at it a certain way, it kind of looked like people having sex, that people would be more inclined to buy that product. Well, it, it, I, I do remember a debunking about it. I don't know if, if, but people still believe in it. I mean, there, there, you know, advertising is a real psychological science because you want to persuade people. You want to manipulate people into a certain series of behaviors. And people have been studying this for many, many years. And there are certain things that just work. And if you appeal to us, um, uh, the, the retail hive mind at a certain level, even if it's an unconscious level, you will see success. Chemically, what's going on in our brains when we walk into a store where Christmas music is playing? You know, right away. So when you're when you first walk in, there's actually very high threat response. And so we see 
activation in all levels of your brain, you know, everywhere that sort of almost as if to say the brain at a subconscious level is saying, I, this is a new environment. Everything here is new. Everything is an offense, an offense to my senses. How can I sort of get, um, uh, comfortable in this space? Is this a flight, a flight or fight reaction almost, right? Uh, and what we see is that there is what they often call a decompression or a landing strip, a decompression zone, where that is during that time. doesn't take long. It's a very familiar thing to do very typically. The more drastic or experiential the, the environment, the more of this threat response we see. Um, and then the, the less routine this shopping experience is, the more of this threat response we see. But very quickly, through a properly orchestrated decompression zone or landing strip, we see the brain shift into levels of, of activation and stimulation, but um, excitement instead of threat. And so that is the conversion that retailers and we as you know, marketers and sort of neuroscientists are trying to get to is how do we take that threat response and that energy and move it into an excitement phase so that what we see is high levels of, of cortical activation and we see somebody who's engaged with this space and enjoying themselves but willing and able then to transact in that space and to trust us to produce for them goods, potentially services that they might want and, and, and want to buy. And so we're trying to increase purchase intent by activating a sense of excitement, a sense of wonder, and a sense of, um, if not adventure, a sense of uh, serendipity of the find, right? And so it's almost like a search and reward, like a treasure hunt of types where what you're doing or what we're trying to present to you in successive rounds is more and more goodies, better and better goodies that sort of continue to excite you and continue to surge levels, a little bit of dopamine that gets you to um, feeling like, yeah, this is a really fun thing to be doing, or this is something that I want to stay and do more of, which of course, there's been a lot of um, talk and writing and research around dopamine feedback loops and the idea that Effectively, if you continue a little bit of dopamine, I always say begets a lot of bit of dopamine, but the idea that if we can convert you into that excitement stage and you get a little bit of dopamine, which is the action hormone that also feels sort of self very good, it feels endogenously rewarding. Um, if you can get a little bit, you want more of it and more of it. And so as long as we don't offend your senses with, let's say, offensive music or offensive scents or you know, too many people in the aisleways, so there's a maximum capacity that stores are designed to have, et cetera. If we can kind of continue to get you in that flow state in your sensory perceptions, um, and then ultimately you can shift into a subconscious, automated, excited headspace, continue to surge that dopamine, and then you loop through behavioral cycles effectively of continuing to find make a purchase decision, and then be happy with it. Find purchase decision, happy with it, et cetera, et cetera. I have a report from The Telegraph in the UK. Let me just go through some of these points. Half of all shoppers think that November is too early to start being bombarded with festive music. That's just a, a UK survey. Uh, also, if the music is too loud, shoppers will get irritated. And it should be noted that this applies to all in-store music throughout the year, but it does have a, prof a more profound effect uh, during the holiday season. If songs are repeated too often, shoppers apparently get irritated. And we mentioned this earlier, it has a deleterious effect on staff because a repetition of Christmas songs will make them cranky and drive down productivity. Uh, the survey also says, or the study also says, beware of playing remix, remix of well-known Christmas favorites because if shoppers don't appreciate the cover, 
they could bail on you. An extreme example would be like a metal version of Jingle Bells. It just doesn't seem to be, you know, there's lots of those out there, but you don't want to play that in your store because it's probably going to drive people out. This is Twisted Sisters' interpretation of the traditional Christmas song, 12 Days of Christmas. This is heavy metal Christmas. AJ. Also, repeated exposure to Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You" can drive people to suicide. Okay, I just I just made that last one up. Actually, Alan brings up an interesting point, and something that you had touched on a little bit earlier. Is there a difference in our acceptance when we walk into a store that's playing Christmas music when they're playing instrumental versus something with lyrics? Oh, good question. And can we break this down by gender? Yeah. Uh, so to the first question, the answer is yes. What we see is that uh, vocal and vocalization. So if there is a voice saying words, uh, we find that that is not just polarizing, but highly distracting. And so that's when the cognitive brain and even the subconscious brain, but the brain says, Hey, I, that's something to listen to. And so when they start listening to lyrics, they become distracted from the actual task at hand, which should be putting items into a cart. Um, and, and that has the possibility of polarizing them away from um, what they're interested in. The gender effect isn't what we often say in social sciences is there's more difference between uh, or rather within a population than between a population. And so there's not very likely to find um, differences there in terms of gender preferences, because what we see is that this individual preference, it varies so much effectively. Um, there is evidence to show in other contexts, so not in holiday music, Christmas music, or the retail environment, that females are more sensitive to words, uh, whereas men are more, sen- and, and to, you know, the, the images that words conjure, whereas men are more sensitive to images and less to words. Sounds like you're talking about porn. Yeah, well, it's not, but it's not that research, but yeah, absolutely why pornography is upheld mostly by males, as an example, is because males prefer static imagery and dyna- rather dynamic imagery and imagery of all kinds that actually have more neurons as an example for a female silhouette and the female form, which I often joke, and this is a bit of a, an extent tangent from where we were, but I often joke, you know, that whole, the age old tale of he was watching the woman walk by and the wife gives him a slap or whatever. Well, the truth is, is that he's literally at a level that basal metabolic rate almost, like at this level that's so subconscious, he's literally programmed to watch for the female silhouette moving. Yes, that's, I tell my wife that all the time. It's, it's called the, it's, it's, uh, sorry, sorry, sweetie, it was my lizard brain. Yeah, yeah, so your lizard brain, it's not quite that simple, but yes, the idea is, is that at a subconscious level, your, your visual cortices are, um, designed to spot from miles and miles away, effectively, a female and be able to sort of assess very quickly from a silhouette perspective whether she's attractive or not. And there's all kinds of science behind it, a hip to race ratio, et cetera. But the idea anyway is that um, definitely when we look to, um, as an example, in um, sexually stimulating media, what you often see is females won't go for video or imagery at all. She'll do a lot more in the way of reading, 
um, what she's interested in, et cetera. So words seem to be more, uh, will tickle a female's brain differently and not just sexually than they will for a man, which coming back full circle to Christmas music as an example, we can expect that, um, anything that is vocal and therefore not instrumental will be more likely to be distracting to a female shopper who we know is what we call the CPO, the chief purchasing officer of every household and of most holiday shopping. So, Which also explains why uh, so many of the radio stations that flip to Christmas music 24-7 are female-facing uh, or female-appealing radio stations. Uh, you know, Hence Mariah um, Carey. Hits or, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just I'm just looking here. I have some statistics. Uh-oh. Uh, there is... <laughs> About Christmas music, not about pornography. Well, about Mariah Carey, as a matter of fact. Oh, even worse. So if you look at all the radio stations in North America that are playing Christmas music right now, there is a radio station in Edmonton that is playing All I Want for Christmas is You more times than any other radio station on the continent. And in one week, between Sunday, November the 25th, and Saturday, December the 1st, they played the song 62 times. Then there's a radio station in Winnipeg that played it 61 times. And then we go down to a station in uh, Sacramento, California, 61 times. And then it's like one, two, three more Canadian radio stations that play between 52 and 61 times a week. I'm off to Edmonton this week. I will find out if the radio station is nothing but a smoldering hole in the ground where it used to be by the time I arrive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Let's expand this into other senses, Bryn. Um, Mm -hmm. If you are going to overwhelm people or try not to overwhelm people with Christmas music, um, you point out that other senses such as smell can play a role in encouraging us to put more things in a basket. Absolutely. And so what we see or what we advise as an example with retailers is that they would kind of consider all five senses, right? So touch, smell, sound, taste. The idea is is that in the holiday season, you're not surprised to see not only holiday music being played, preferably that that is instrumental and non-vocal, but at tempos and at volumes that are what we consider to be sort of almost um, ignorable so that you can stay in that automated subconscious headspace that there would be smells in this environment, things like, you know, pine and chestnut and nutty, nutty flavors and smells, um, and peppermint, you name it, that will be able to, uh, cinnamon, I'm just conjuring up all of these scents that there might be pumped into the environment that do, in fact, both show increases in purchase intention and basket sizes is one of the metrics we look at. So how much does a person purchase in that singular shopping episode? Um, And so if you, you know, the smells are very potent toward conjuring up olfactory, the olfactory bulb, which is the seat in the brain, basically, of all long-term memories. So all of a sudden, this, you know, really amazing holiday smell comes into your nose, and you're you're sort of not very aware of it, but you realize and slowly it creeps up on you that this smells like every Christmas you've ever had, and it conjures up all this nostalgia and you, you know, you're remembering seasons gone by and all these consumption experiences. And then all of a sudden it occurs to you that you should buy, you know, a ton more of eggnog and you need X, Y, and Z, a whole bunch of things you never even, weren't even on your list to begin with. Uh, and so definitely retailers are using smell to their advantage as much as possible year round. But of course, in the holiday season, more holiday sense with the idea of trying to conjure nostalgia, which we know anyone in a nostalgic space will purchase a, a ton more. So consumption goes up uh, very heavily. They'll also do things like trying to manipulate 
you know, the space itself. So how much room you have to move around, how cozy it feels in there, uh, the sites that you're likely to see. So things like trees and ornaments, decorations, Santa Claus, mangers. They'll also use uh, even stores that don't typically do this. You'll see um, uh, what I would consider to be sort of like taste test kiosks or holiday kiosks with you know, um, candy canes and, um, you know, holiday treats, um, hot chocolate, that kind of thing that we start to see in store spaces that you wouldn't even necessarily otherwise expect that. And the whole notion there is not just to increase this sort of nostalgia, a sense of holiday, you know, what we consider to be called an experiential space. That's what we're trying to create as an experience. Um, but also enhance the sense of place, so that you want to be there more, you want to spend more time in that space. We know that um, if you do spend more time, you spend more money. Um, but the idea there, yes, is to get people sort of in the mood to get spending money and enjoying themselves and really increase that basket size. Uh, okay, so then I'm going to ask you before we let you go to use your science for good and teach us <laughs> how as consumers we can inoculate ourselves from the Christmas music and everything else that gets us to spend more than we anticipated? Yes, it's such a great question. So the first thing I often say to do is to make sure that you are, um, you know, you go with a list. So you have your list in front of you. So even when all of these being space experiential design starts to really get to you and you think you're going to lose your mind and your budget, that what you're actually doing is, is you're able to refocus on that list and say to yourself, this is what I came for. And this is what I am going to buy and, and nothing else. I also say go with a plan, a schedule, like anything. And, and a lot of retailers take from casino theory, things like no windows, no clocks, no ability to tell when, you know, day has turned to night, that kind of thing, um, really in order to create the addiction, that dopamine feedback loop of continuing to shop. So I say make, set yourself a schedule and a time limit and a budget so that none of those things can kind of take over. Uh, people who go typically distracted um, or with kids, uh, they will, will often find that they will make hasty decisions. They don't necessarily spend more time in stores, but they will make hastier decisions in the interest of getting out. And so very typically, we see returns go up, dissatisfaction with products go up, and budgets get broken. Uh, so don't go distracted. Go with that as the plan, right? You're going to go and buy certain things at this specific store. And then I often say... Um, Go at off-peak hours, and the reason for that is because if you have more space and time to actually make your decisions, you make more conscientious cognitive decisions. Uh, you have more time. You've given yourself more time effectively um, to to make intelligent choices and to pick the things you need and not the things you don't want. Now, the other thing about space, which is very again, it's subliminal, it's subconscious is that if you give yourself actual physical space to make these decisions, so you go when there is not high density of other shoppers, we find that distraction levels go down, dissatisfaction levels go down, but that also, and especially this is especially true in women, um, that then they are less irritable and, and less likely then to make hasty decisions or decisions they're not happy with later that increase what we call buyer remorse. So go with lots of time and space at off-peak hours so that you're not sort of forced into decisions in the interest of getting out there. Um, but those are sort of my four top line <laughs> pieces of advice. If you want to stick to your budget, not drive yourself crazy and not fall prey to a lot of these experiential design components. Doctor, thank you so much for your time and insight. And I really wish you had told us, yes, we should stop playing Christmas music. <laughs> yes. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Bryn Weingart is a doctor of neuroscience and a professor at the Schulich School of Business. She joined us from Toronto. And what the real answer is? What? Shop online. <gasps> yeah. 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 It is the real answer. Every single fucking Christmas, you give me the same old shit. Christmas song was. Ooh, yeah. I mean, if she knows the ins and outs of all this, is she susceptible to manipulation? Yes. Doctor Heal Thyself kind of thing, right? Kind of, yeah. We want to say thank you to Adrian Bashford. He is a $3 an episode member of the world's worst intern program. I just noticed he downgraded from being a co-producer at $25 an episode, so I'm hoping he hadn't actually been dinged every single episode when he only meant one or two. We want to say, Adrian, thank you for sticking around and donating three bucks an episode. You go to geeksandbeats.com, click the support the show link, and you can either uh, be a member of the World's Worst Intern Program, or you can be a co-producer where we send you the album art from that week's episode that has your name on it. You can print it off, frame it, hang it in your parents' basement. Maybe it would make a good Christmas gift. That's a really good idea. A Christmas gift. Yes. And then you wouldn't have to put up with Christmas music. (laughs) Again, shopping online. There you go. Yes. We want to also thank Anthony Fole, also a member of the World's Worst Intern Program. We noticed we didn't ding anybody last week for the Atari episode. So we're going to get that uh, posted and uh, get the dollar per listener on that as well. So thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, We don't have any new members of the World's Worst Intern Program. I I think we're starting to slip here as the holidays are coming up again. Yeah, because everybody's in the mall shopping for Christmas stuff. Yeah, tearing their hair out. Hey, listen, what are we going to do next week when I'm in the Caribbean? Are you not going to broadcast from the beach? I can. We will set up a time. I, I'm at the the uh, the uh, southern uh, northeastern Caribbean command post next week. <laughs> Isn't that uh, St. Martin? St. Bart's. So we finally got some granularity on people listening to the big show. Yeah, and I looked at these statistics, and I don't believe them for a second. Yeah, iTunes Connect is what we're talking about here. iTunes made a change to its operating system about a year ago, and then they sort of rolled it out fairly recently, that kept a greater track of you as a listener uh, to a podcast. When you tune in, when you tune out, when you skip, when you stop, uh, that sort of thing. And it was really fascinating to get a, a... bunch of data points. I know you're skeptical about some of them, but the ones that interest me particularly are uh, include the average listen rate is 95%, regardless which is of, insane. Yeah, which is regardless of the length of the episode. What amazed me was that we didn't lose everybody the moment we ran the GNB news update theme, uh, which is is nice to see. But what's also interesting to see is that when we ran the, um, when we played the podcast version of the Facebook live show, when we put it on iTunes, every time I said, we're going to take a quick break, you could see the dips. Sure you could. But the neat thing was, was that everybody came back. 
And we retained through a two hour show, we retained more than half the audience for 80% of the show. Super Bowl doesn't get those kinds of numbers. That's good. <laughs> yes. Super Bowl doesn't get those kinds of numbers. They get other numbers, numbers that are much bigger than our numbers. Yes. But I'm in terms of retention and in terms of loyalty and in terms of of, of, of a level of engagement, this is all really good news. We just need to get the engagement higher. We need more people on board. A nine out of 10 people who listen to the show are regular subscribers. One out of 10 are not subscribers, but they're not being converted into subscribers. So I wonder if the solution is a variation of the YouTube thing, which is make sure you subscribe and click the little bell so that you can be notified. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe what we need to do is spend some of the Patreon money on a daily uh, on a weekly newsletter, and the oh. newsletter would come out on let's say Tuesdays, the day before the. What, what would be in it? Uh, we would just give a quick summary of what we are doing, and but that only focuses on the people who are subscribers. Well, it doesn't get new subscribers. Well, it starts somewhere, right? See what I mean? Don't you think? In other words, maybe what we need to do is we need to ask the listener to tell their friends. Yeah. Tell the whole bunch. Well, the, I just had a hippopotamus for lunch. Right. And that's what we would do with the, with the newsletter. You know, please forward this to a friend. You know, let's let's talk about this. Let's start. If, if, if you forward it to two friends and they forward it to two friends. There you go. And so on. And so on. See? My point, you just made my point. And believe me, there's still nothing like the original Fabergé Organic. It gives me super shine, super body, and super fresh smelling hair. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.
So get this, I'm uh, sitting in the departure lounge at Pearson waiting for my flight to Halifax and my handler for this PR company that's doing this, which is why I'm here and why we're going to CES, mm-hmm. says to me, just casually, because she has no idea what's going on behind the scenes. She well, says, uh, sorry, 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 yeah. sorry. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. She says, uh, yeah, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to be going to CES. What? Yeah. <laughs> now you tell us? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know if that's really the fact. It's not her file. She's not on the beat. It's somebody else who's going to be doing it or supposed to be doing it. Okay. Um, well, but it gave me a fucking heart attack. Yeah, no kidding. So you may be the one. I may be the one on going location. to see. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. that's fine. Uh, flip the script on it. It's all paid for. Well, yeah, it's all done. So yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, I'll update you. Okay, when I and I will let you know as a um, uh, a time for next Sunday. It'll if we can do it in the afternoon, that would be great. Yeah, it's probably not a problem. All right, man. Later.